Welcome to episode 48 of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by commentator and New York Times columnist David French to talk about politics. We discuss partisan polarization, public witness, and I even ask him to give some predictions for the election cycle ahead. Whether you are a political enthusiast or not, we hope you will enjoy this conversation, and we thank you, as always, for tuning in. I've always worried about the term culture war. The term, coined by James Davidson Hunter in the early 90s, expresses the felt sense that there is a battle being waged for hearts and minds where faith and freedom may be at stake. I don't want to minimize the cultural challenges that have produced this posture among Christians, nor do I want to deny that military metaphors are found in the New Testament or that the public nature of faith requires that we contest and resist cultural currents. But my concern is whether culture war can remain faithful, responsible, and generative as a primary posture for public life. The working assumptions of those at war too often resemble Machiavelli rather than Augustine, a willingness to win at any cost rather than the restraint and strict rules of engagement that characterize the just war tradition. Furthermore, the sense of being continually embattled and under attack engenders anxiety, exhaustion, and rage. The fog of war obscures our vision. We need better metaphors and models to cut through the fog and to reorient our life together for the sake of the world. Our guest today offers a possible model. David French is a decorated veteran defender of free speech and conservative commentator who writes for the New York Times. As one who has seen literal war, French has warned of the dangers of partisan polarization and offered a way forward in the midst of it. There is no quick or easy solution, he writes, and it may get worse before it gets better. But Christians have a unique opportunity to make a difference, to resist the temptation to demonize our opponents, and to remember that though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. This interview was recorded in front of a live studio audience, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation with David French. I'm joined now by an esteemed guest, David French, and a live podcast studio audience. And we're going to talk about Christians and politics and your story. So here's the first one. For those who don't know your work or your story, you went to Harvard Law, You have a long record of defending religious liberty and pro-life causes. You're a decorated veteran of the Iraq War. You worked at Walmart in the gun, uh, in the gun section, selling guns. Yeah. Uh, You also write a column for the New York Times. Two very similar professions. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So you write in your recent book that you have become a man without a party. Mm -hmm. You're not a Democrat, and you're no longer a Republican. And in recent years, many Christians can resonate with that sense of political displacement. But I wonder if you could trace a bit of that journey of how you got there. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, um, my parents were Democrats. My parents were McGovern Democrats. And so one of my youthful rebellions was becoming a Reagan Republican. <laughs> good. Like my hero at the time, one Michael 
Keaton, uh, uh, or no, Alex P. Keaton, sorry, from Family Ties. No, I was I was a what you would call a Cold War conservative. So mm. I grew up in the the height of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, you know, the classic three legs of the Republican stool, which were more economically libertarian, more socially conservative, and very internationalist is the wrong word, but very uh, forward had a had a very aggressive military strategic defense posture, and so that was kind of. You know, there's a lot of room for disagreement on this or that, but that mm-hmm. was kind of the understanding. And then also there was another element to this, which was growing up as a conservative and someone who believed in much more limited government, also much more on, uh, you know, we're looking for individual responsibility and virtue and character and integrity to sort of really as the real energy for this constitutional republic as opposed to whatever government initiative. Mm. So I had a high view of individual liberty, and along with that came a high view of the necessity of personal character. So to me, there was no way to be conservative Mm -hmm. without putting an extreme premium on personal character. Mm -hmm. And this, for me, in the 1990s, I was like, well, haven't I been proved correct? Because after uh, Reagan and then Bush, we got Bill Clinton. And a lot of people were making an argument back in the 1990s. Well, you compartmentalize. He might be really bad in his treatment of his wife and his daughter, and he might be abusive towards women, but he's got really good policies. And in 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention came forward with a statement on the importance of character in public officials uh, that one of the key lines was, tolerance of serious wrongs by leaders sears the conscience of a culture breeds unrestrained lawlessness and will surely result in God's judgment. So that's 1998. And with a lot of other Christians, that was not controversial. Mm. Because if you're a Republican Christian like I was, what's the cost in saying that Bill Clinton is right. a problematic? There's, I can thunder that from the heavens and people are like, man, that was almost a, a Jeremiah in the best sense, mm. like, like a Jeremiah Jeremiah. Mm. But speaking... Thunderously condemning your political opponents takes about zero courage, right? Um, It's extremely crowd-pleasing. So then fast forward, and in 2016, somebody who I don't think anyone would really argue was a person of real personal character became the Republican nominee. And also the Republican Party was changing ideologically. So if it was veering from me ideologically – becoming more isolationist, for example, more big government focus, mm. less individual liberty focus. So it's moving from me ideologically yeah. and it's definitely moving from me in character and temperament, then why, why would I stay Republican? Mm. And so I felt like at some point I just was going to be a hypocrite if I stayed mm. Republican. And so uh, I didn't become a Democrat because there's a lot about the Democratic Party that I disagree with. But for me, it was just if I was ideologically and on a basis of character conservative, and sure. it was becoming less ideologically conservative and completely unmoored from character, then I just didn't want to be a part of it. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think a lot of Christians would probably say something like, yeah, of course, there's problems in both political parties, but but they would also say, but the other side is so much worse. Right. Right. And who the other side is depends a lot on where you live. You know, I, yeah. I lived in Los Angeles before I lived in Sioux Center, Iowa. And yeah. it was always the other side is just so much worse. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of us have this sense, well, of course, I'll identify with a party and I'll work for change from within or something like that. But you're pointing out that there can come a time when you feel like you can't do that anymore and you might need to disaffiliate. And I'm yeah. wondering, what what do you think is the relationship between having some sort of political affiliation or 
saying, I'm a member of this party and working for the common good. And I'm also curious, does being a man without a party, do you feel like it marginalizes you from both sides or does it give you a unique hearing from uh-huh. both sides? What, what has your experience been since you became yeah. a man without a party? And to, so what I, I ask people to do, I don't ask people to follow the same journey that I followed. I think we need people who are faithful Christians who are members of the Democratic Party, faithful Christians who are members of the Republican Party. But the emphasis on that is faithful Christians, not right. Democratic Party or Republican Party. And what we find is that a person, when when they begin to assume a partisan identity, mm. in other words, if one of the lead things that you say about yourself when someone asks who you are is Republican or Democrat, if somebody adopts that partisan identity, it it becomes immediately a a pretty strong temptation towards idolatry. Mm. Um, there are a lot of reasons for this, sort of the concepts of group solidarity, our need for community, just the desire to avoid unpleasantness. So we have this temptation towards that partisan identity, and that's your danger. It's not, I voted for Republicans or I voted for Democrats, or it's not even Mm -hmm. that I ran for office as a Republican or as a Democrat. It's Mm -hmm. that what is my identity? If my identity is Republican or Democrat, then it's a real recipe for disaster. And then the other thing you have to think through very hard is how much do I want to justify anything that I do with a lesser evil analysis, okay? Because what is the operative word in the phrase lesser or evil? Okay, I would submit it's evil. Mm. It's not lesser. And and here's the reason why. You have to understand our own human nature. Not one of us wants to sort of think about our involvement in any cause as somewhat evil, just not as evil. No one is running around at a political rally going, lesser evil, (laughs) lesser evil. That doesn't get people out of bed in the morning. What does is this convincing them that they're on a crusade for something that's good. And so what ends up happening is with that tension between lesser evil Mm. versus the desire to do something good, we often do what? We start to call what is evil good. Mm. And you see this kind of compromise in politics all the time where people will say, well, things like desperate measures, times call for desperate measures, or we need that SOB for us, mm-hmm. or, and all of that is evidence of team lesser evil, mm-hmm. lesser evil, but they can't live in that tension. Yeah. And so they start to call what's evil good and then embrace that. Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way because I think what we hear is, is something like, we're not perfect, but the other side is evil. Right, which right. is something that you mention in your book as well, to, to go from saying the other side is wrong mm-hmm. um, or mistaken uh, to the other side is evil, which, as you point out, makes it a lot harder to treat our political opponents with respect, as you yeah. write in your book. One does not respect evil. Yeah. One defeats evil. Justice requires nothing less. Or you also write, there is a vast difference between disagreeing with your opponent and believing their views are outside the realm of acceptable discourse, it's a very short trip to conclude that they shouldn't enjoy the right to speak at all. Right. So how does culture move forward when it feels like the stakes are so high? Yeah. Well, one thing that we have to do is actually speak the truth and talk about what are the stakes really. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting. This is actually harder to do than you think. Because if a lot of people are justifying the way in which they interact with the public square on a diagnosis of the of the country as essentially a, on the verge of death, right? If you dispute the diagnosis, it calls into question all of the conduct that flew, that flows from the diagnosis. Mm. And so I have in- encountered just enormous backlash 
if I argue, for example, that religious liberty is actually quite secure legally in the United States, or free speech rights are quite secure legally in the United mm -hmm. States, or that any number of social indicators aren't as bad as people say, or some social indicators might be improving, people get very, very, very angry because so much of their worldview is built around this constant emergency narrative. Right. And for Christians, this gets particularly dangerous because one thing that's pretty clear from Scripture is that evil is not something that we're just these awesome human beings, and if only we weren't exposed to the libs, think how great we'd be, right? No, we are broken. We are flawed. We are we have our own, you know, we are subject to original sin, the fallenness of man. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Scripture continually is telling us that we need to look in the mirror before we're taking on everybody else. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't just apply individually. It applies collectively. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul scolds the uh, Corinthian Christian church because they had sexual immorality inside the church that he said was something that even pagans would shudder at. Right. And then he said of the people outside the church, God will judge them. But if you inside the church expel the wicked from among you, and think about how much we get that backwards in modern American life where we're incredibly forgiving and incredibly tolerant even of corruption inside the church, at the same time we're standing there and saying, look how bad the world is. Well, yeah, the world's got a lot of problems. The world's got a lot of problems. But when you have some of the scandals like we've had, you know, it would strike me as an imperative to start to get our own house in order mm. before we blame everybody else for all the, you know, all the ills that befall mm. us. Can I transition to talk a bit about your book here, mm -hmm. Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation? So for those who haven't read the book, I'll, I'll give a brief summary that the warning that David gives in this book is that it's conceivable that we could see the break up of the American Republic into smaller entities. So it follows the example of Brexit, where the UK left the EU, and you play it out in these two directions, Calexit, mm -hmm. in which California and the other Western states secede, and then also Texit, in which Texas and the Southern states, some of the Southern states secede. And so you wrote this a couple years ago, but are you more optimistic or less optimistic about the prospect of a split? How might we avert a breakup? And then the other question I want to ask is there's probably some people who would say maybe we're used to church splits or denominational splits and we think, oh, good good fences make good neighbors. Yeah, right. uh, so maybe it would be better for everyone yeah. if Calexit or Texit occurred. Um, yeah. What do, you, what do you think about that? So maybe we don't you talked about this lethal mass partisanship. Partisanship, uh, partisanship. So maybe we are not part of the 20% that hopes for the death of the other party, but maybe we think, oh, if they were another country, that would be better. So right. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So first, I wrote the book and finished it right at the onset of the pandemic <laughs> um, in, I believe I turned in the final version of it in May. And as I turned it in, I thought, okay, we're all going through this massive collective trauma. <laughs> um, the thesis of my book is going to be proven or disproven really freaking fast. Um, and if I'm wrong, then we're going to come together, right? Uh, if I was right, then we were going to start to tear each other apart. And by golly, did we start to tear each other apart? Um, now, part of this is pandemics historically don't necessarily bring societies together, right. right? But we did go through this common trauma and we emerged from it more divided. 
And then, you know, January 6th happens and January 6th happens. And that was worse and sooner than I anticipated. Mm. Uh, that, that was a kind of political violence. It was worse than I anticipated and sooner. And so all of a sudden, before January 6th, a lot of people were saying, I liked your book, David, but that secession word, isn't that, a, isn't that just too far? To after January 6th, they're saying, how did you see this coming? Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't think it takes rocket science to figure out what's happening here, because if you look historically, when you have geographically contiguous areas that see themselves as having a common culture and they believe that common culture is under threat from a larger whole, right. it creates separatist movements. And those separatist movements gain real energy if your sense of common threat includes a, an idea of physical threat. In other words, that people don't just want to deprive me of my rights, but they want to harm me mm -hmm. physically. So the rise of violent rhetoric um, really plays into that as well. And then so you begin to see this in polling. So shortly after the 2020 election, there was a poll that said a majority of Trump voters would be OK if the blue states left. And 40 percent of Biden voters would be OK if the red states left. So they weren't saying go ahead and kick them out. But yeah. they were saying if they leave, they'd be OK with it. And what I talk about in the book is. This isn't just possible. In some ways, it's foreseeable. Mm -hmm. And so in the Cal exit scenario and the Texas scenario, I talk about how these states, through very easily foreseeable circumstances, could reach a political crisis point where they turn to their voters and they say, vote, should we leave the union? And, um, and the point I try to make in the book is however much you hate your political opponent, you are not ready for what would happen if this country split up. Hmm. You are just not ready for the catastrophe that would be inflicted upon this country, the people in this country and the world. And a lot of people don't understand or appreciate that fact. So they're playing with fire. Hmm. They're playing with matches without realizing that the fire can catch the curtains, hmm. you know, or the fire can it can ignite some you know, old newspapers or whatever. They don't, don't know how dangerous yeah. it is to play with fire and they're playing with it. And, you know, eliminationist rhetoric, violent rhetoric, violent actions, all of these things are putting the system under strain. I mean, think on January 6, 2021, if, all, if, if one variable changed, Mike Pence said yes. If just think through, if Mike Pence had said yes, we had had a constitutional crisis unlike any we'd had since April 1861. That's how close we came. One guy, one guy upholding his oath to the Constitution, and it ends his political career. Mm. Um, that's scary to me. That's scary to me. So we are in a situation where people hate each other so much that we're, we're just playing with fire mm. at this point. Well, while you have your prognosticator hat on, we are recording this interview at the end of 2023, which means that we're rapidly approaching yeah. the ramp up for 2024. And I wonder if you have any predictions of what we might see in the coming months and then whether or not your predictions come true. What do you think are some of the most important postures that we need to be cultivating or developing to weather the season well of what we're going to I mean, think about how intense things are politically right now, and it is November 2023. Multiply that by 10x by September, October of 2024. And so this is a going to be a moment where the call on Christians to exhibit, not just talk about, to exhibit loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you, humility, mm -hmm. kindness, that is going to become not just sort of a personal imperative, it might actually be a national imperative. Mm -hmm. Because is there going to be a community anywhere in this country that is calling for that? 
Hmm. Um, instead, we're going to have the most, uh, assuming everything works out the way it looks like it will, which is Trump is the nominee, Biden is the nominee. The apocalyptic rhetoric that we will hear in the run-up to 2024 is going to be unbelievable. And so they're going to have to be voices of reason and peace. But again, without abandoning what you think are the best policy ideas, but as intense as things are right now, I mean, just imagine if Trump is convicted. And so he's staring a prison sentence in the face and he's running for president. And so it's telling the messages, if you don't vote for me for president, not only will you lose your country, but the president you love is going to prison. Mm I mean, you're going to be ratcheting up the stakes. And so this need for a community of believers who can actually see the image of God in other people and react accordingly. But what I fear is that this community of believers is going to be stoked into its own sense of existential despair and panic and will become part of the problem and not part of the solution. Mm. Do you want to go any further than that and making a prediction on whether you think that he will be convicted or whether he will be the nominee or, you know, anything? I mean, you know, talk to me when somebody polls who's running him polls consistently above 15 percent. Talk to me when his lead is less than 40 points. I mean, you know, is it theoretically possible that he cannot get the nomination? Sure. It is. entirely possible. Mm-hmm. It's also entirely possible that my Memphis Grizzlies will go from one and six <laughs> and win the win the NBA title. I do yeah. not think it's going to happen. So it is possible he doesn't get the nomination. I think it's slightly more possible that Biden isn't the Democratic nominee, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. I think he's set on running for right now, but the Democrats are a lot less united behind him mm-hmm. than the Republicans are around Donald Trump. Is a it- lot less. So, is there a Democrat candidate that you could see emerging from the field? There's no one obvious favorite. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the problem. So, if you're going to look at Joe Biden and you're going to say, Mr. President, you know, look, Methuselah lived a long time, but he wasn't trying to run a country, you know, and <laughs> we wish you well, but this is not the time to be running the country anymore. Mm. And he says, okay, well, then who? Uh, uh, well, we'll get back to you on that, Mr. President. And then they say, but you might lose to Trump. And he'll look to them and say, you know who's the only Democrat who hasn't lost to Trump? This guy. And so it's kind of hard to go to him and say, it is the time for you to step down when he's beaten Trump, mm-hmm. when there isn't a uh, heir apparent waiting in the wings, mm-hmm. and when, frankly, you know, not too many people become president without having a lot of pride and belief that they can continue right. to do the job. Yeah. So I don't see Biden stepping away, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I do think it's it's possible. I just don't think it's yeah. likely. Yeah. Let me ask this. So we've been talking a bit about this sort of unwillingness to give ground to the other side. And Jonathan Haidt talks about this in terms of structural stupidity. Yeah. Because we're ne- never around other people who see the world differently than we do. And so we can never learn from others. And there's a lot of ideas that many Christians regard, rightly or not, as dangerous, whether related to race or gender. I had a student who said to me not long ago, about CRT. I don't know what it is, but I know I'm against it. Um, And (laughs) I I sort of get that, though. I I sometimes wonder if they have enough of a stable core to wrestle with some of these things in their strongest forms. And so I wonder if you could help us think through how we might be able to grow in our conviction and our curiosity at the same time. You know, that's that's a really good question. So I think that what we... One thing that can, I think, help us maintain relationships with people and put things in perspective is just think of your life... And think of it almost like 
a mathematical equation in the sense that you can have a very small amount of influence over a large number of people and a large amount of influence over a small number of people. So the people in your family, large amount of influence. Your close friends, large amount of influence. Israel, Gaza, very little influence, mm. okay? And so if your posture towards life is one such that in the areas where you have the least influence is where you're putting the most emphasis, even to the expense of relationships of the people who are closest to you, you're getting this thing backwards, mm. right? You're just getting this thing wrong. And so this idea that I'm going to condition that my treatment of other people, I'm going to condition the existence of relationships themselves with people over disagreements that in the practical sense of the world, let's say you and I have to total disagreement about Israel-Gaza, total disagreement. The fact that you completely disagree and I might think you're actually wrong in advocating for an evil position, our disagreement isn't impacting that conflict at all. But if there's a, some, a way in which you're in distress, like you've had a loss in the family or you have, you're struggling academically or you're struggling in your career, I can intervene in your life and actually make a difference mm -hmm. in a way that's very concrete. But you know what? How I cannot do it if I've written you off because of something that we both have no control over. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll have, I had a hard conversation with somebody I love very much recently where they came into my house and they... Every time they come in the house, they are ready to talk to me about what they have just watched on Fox News. And, and most days is the border. And comes in, red hot, David, the border. And I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, you know who cannot do anything about the border? You. You know who else cannot do anything about the border? And I know you think I can. I cannot. Okay? I cannot. It is not my area of expertise. I don't have influence in that area. So you're, you're coming in mad about something that we, neither one of us can do anything about when we have a lot of other things that we can engage with each other on that will actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm just going to ask you, when you're in my house, don't, don't, please don't talk to me about anything you've just seen on Fox, please. Anything but that. And he, to his credit, said, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't do that. And it's been really good for our relationship. Mm -hmm. And so... This idea that we have this epidemic in this country where we say, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. I'm not going to have respect for you anymore over these more distant issues. And, and often this lack of respect we show for people, think about how arrogant that is on our, on our side. I have figured out Israel-Gaza to such an extent that you can't even be in my life if you disagree with my wisdom. Mm. Wow. That's pretty. That's a pretty potent mm -hmm. declaration. Now, people will then always ask the Nazi question. Well, what about Nazis? Yeah, what you, are the limits? What are the limits? Yeah, yeah. Okay, if somebody's an actual Nazi, I don't like them. Like no Nazis. Um, but the the fact that a line exists doesn't mean that we need to be constantly pulling that line in to where it's just more and more. We are just more and more and more intolerant. Yeah. Our default position should be towards grace. Now, people can go beyond the great, beyond those bounds where it's like, okay, you've got to repent before we're going to be in a relationship. But our default position should be grace. And we often right now are looking for a default position to be intolerant and try to justify mm -hmm. that. Let me ask two more questions. So the first question, I, mean, I guess both, both of the questions are related to being a Christian voice or a Christian presence 
in diverse spaces or maybe post-Christian spaces mm-hmm. in some in some ways. You've talked about being at Harvard Law and being sort of in the minority there or uh, writing for the New York Times, for example. And so first question is, are there significant ways? So you've talked about how this has brought humility, understanding of others. Are there ways you've changed your mind significantly as a result of being exposed to wider communities? <laughs> I mean, sure. I grew up in a pretty uh, bubble. I, I, I grew up in a bubble. I mean, I grew up in rural Kentucky. Now, everyone if I grew up with would have said that they're Christian, Protestant Christian. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like my high school, my public high school, if you were trying to live a Christian life, you were very much in the minority. It was just everyone was saying they're a Christian when they were smashed on Friday night, <laughs> right? You know, and then you're the guy from the youth group that doesn't do that, and everyone thinks mm-hmm. you're weird and. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a moral minority, hmm. and then I grew up in a field, and then I came of age at law school and beyond in a intellectual minority. Mm-hmm. So those are two kind of interestingly different environments where in the abstract, people would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian just like you, but they don't act like it. Yeah. And then other, another environment where people are like, I'm not a Christian, Right. And I actually find it easier to live in the latter community than the former. There's community. a clarity. There. Yeah. yeah. So when you're living in a community where everyone believes that they are a Christian mm-hmm. and yet living in such a way that it's really hard to see the fruit of the Spirit, that's a difficult – for me, some people really do well. That's a difficult place for me to yeah. be. Whereas if I'm in an environment where those kinds of theological differences are quite clear um, – you know, one thing, it helped my faith because when I was in an environment where there was nothing to be gained socially from mm-hmm. identifying as a Christian, it really helped you clarify, I mean, is this what I really believe, mm-hmm. right? And then the other thing is um, when you are in those environments, it really helps cure you of this idea that A, Christian groups have a monopoly on virtue or B, that Christian groups have a monopoly on knowledge, mm. And when you're in these more secular environments and you run into people who are more kind, more thoughtful mm. than, you know, most of the people you know from church, you know, it really is a humbling experience. It can puncture totally your sense of cultural superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, I think, when you're in those environments, if you're just going to live in such a way where you're actually loving other people, mm. you're going to hear from them. You're going to listen to them. You're not in a position where you're just dictating to them. And if you hear and listen to other people who are incredibly intelligent, you're going to learn some things that shake your sense of certainty. I'm not saying in faith in Jesus, but in a lot of issues. Yeah. You know, I, as I said at lunch, I grew up being taught lost causeism. That was the, the water in, I swam in, you know, when I was getting K through 12 and beyond education in the South where... The history of the Civil War was extremely distorted. Hmm. And so I walk into law school hmm. with the sense that I felt like I knew history. And I did not. Yeah. I did not. And, you know, a really interesting question for a lot of folks who think they know American racial history is like, for example, how old were you when you learned about the Tulsa race massacre? Which is a really interesting question about our own hmm. lack of knowledge. And for me, I'm afraid to say, I think it was in, when I was in my 40s. Hmm. In my 40s was the first time I'd heard about it. And so I think um, just walking into spaces with an open heart and an open mind, but a firm conviction that Jesus is Lord. And here's one last thing, just to, on this point. You get pushback. 
You know, you absolutely I have stories from law school, of people trying to shout me down, people telling me I needed to go die, people calling me a fascist like I have stories. But here's the here's the thing that I see in Christian circles now. A lot of times a lot of people are very angry at evangelicals right now, very angry. And a lot of evangelicals look at that and say, see, the world's persecuting us. You know, and I hear this phrase where people will go, well, if you're taking flack, it means you're over the target. No, sometimes it means you're a jerk, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's very important. If we're going to face pushback from the world, and we will, mm-hmm. why are you getting the pushback? Mm-hmm. It is, is it because, you know, I'm pro-life? Is it if they are angry, angry, angry at me because I'm pro-life, so be it. Mm-hmm. So be it. But if they're angry, angry, angry at me, not because I'm pro-life, but because I'm the biggest jerk on the internet and pro-life, then I need to not adopt this complex like I'm some Jesus figure. Mm-hmm. You know, I could, I'm just a raging jerk. And so a lot of us actually need to think carefully about why, who is coming at us and why, oh. and not view all opposition as vindication. Yeah, I wonder, maybe this is a good way to close. It's, you strike me as a person who is very willing to learn from others, but also you have really deep roots. And I wonder if you could just speak to those deep roots. You just mentioned this idea that Jesus is Lord is that thing that secures you. So what's the relationship between having those deep roots or that sense of secure, secure attachment, we might call it, that enables you to go into potentially hostile situations on, on either side? Yeah, it's a, gr- it's a great question. I I would say, you know, there's uh, Barry Corey from um, Biola. He talks about, and I'm going to mess up his words here. So, Barry, I I apologize. I'm sure he's listening to this. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm so sorry. But he talks about having a hard core and soft edges. In other words, you're going to have strong fundamental convictions, but you're going to be very welcoming and open to people who can question those convictions. And... And, you know, when I think about that, you know, I think about, for example, the way in which Jesus engaged um, and the way in which Jesus communicated was a way in which he was, people could question even Jesus, right? The son of God. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, I'll answer that. Now, he didn't always answer so directly and immediately, but Mm -hmm. he answered. And and I think of... um, you know, the, the way in which Paul talks about us to be ready to have an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes me think hard about what my answer would be. And also, you know, the older I get and the more that I experience different issues in different parts of the world, the more I realize I have quite limited knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's interesting when Paul looks, when Paul is describing sort of the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit, he doesn't say that the fruit of the spirit is conservatism, republicanism, complementarianism, inerrancy, et cetera. And although I could fit in a lot of those little boxes, he talks about kindness, peace, patience, gentleness, mm-hmm. joy, self-control. And then when he talks about the works of the flesh, he isn't necessarily talking about all of the ideologies at the time. He, yeah, he talks about sexual immorality, but he also talks about strife and envy and all of these other vices. And so... Uh, one of the things that I'm looking for much more is not what is the theology as much as what is the fruit Hmm. and what is the fruit that I see in me. And if I'm, I'll give you just to be completely honest, one of the reasons why I'm off Twitter now is I didn't like the fruit that I saw in me um, or felt in me when I would open that 
hellish app. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we have to we have to watch our fruit and mm-hmm. very carefully. Uh, that was a meandering answer. I'm not sure I answered. No, all you questions. did absolutely. It was a it was a great answer, and uh, we're so thankful to you for joining us on the podcast. Our guest has been David French. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing this podcast with others. This week, we close out with a song from the Ruralists, an earworm that expresses a simple but elusive truth in our polarized age. People are people too. You seem to think they're not You seem to think they're not You treat them like things Not human beings But people love Of course it's the same for me Of course it's the same for me It's hard to admit But I often forget Sometimes they drive us nuts Sometimes they drive us nuts So we try to negate With our labels and hate The people are people too Time here is really short Time here is really short So let's make up a plan To be as kind as we can Cause people are people too People are people too People are